Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Katani. In this episode, we talk to George Church about his plans for the zero-dollar genome and find out how one scientist's interest in personal genomics got a little too close to home. The first draft of the human genome came with a price tag running into billions of dollars. In less than 20 years, the cost of whole genome sequencing had plummeted, making the $1,000 genome a reality by 2014 and opening up a consumer market for personal genome sequencing. Although, as geneticist Elaine Mardis quipped, it's a $1,000 genome and a $100,000 analysis. The price for sequencing continues to fall, and several companies are vying to be the first to break the $100 barrier. But according to George Church, professor of genetics at Harvard Medical School and one of the world's leading authorities on genes and genomes, we're about to see the dawn of the zero-dollar genome, making personal whole genome sequencing effectively free in exchange for the data. To be fair, George does have a vested interest in this area. In 2005, he set up the Personal Genomes Project, which asks willing volunteers to publicly share their personal genome data for the public good. The idea being that trying to keep genome data completely anonymous is too difficult. So what would happen if it was all out in the open to start with? And he's now involved in a new venture called Nebula Genomics, which goes the other way, using a new type of encryption to ensure privacy and data security. I was lucky enough to sit down with him at a recent conference exploring issues in personal genome sequencing held at the Wellcome Genome Campus in Cambridge. I wanted to find out how far we've come in whole genome sequencing and find out what's coming down the pipeline for the future. The quality has improved tremendously and the way you get to $1,000 was by multiplexing. That is to say, one droplet of liquid used to do one reaction and now one droplet of liquid can do millions or billions of reactions. Okay, so that was the main technical thing. But then to get it from 1,000 to zero, you have to recognize that there's huge parts of society that can benefit financially, like the insurance companies or the government or other healthcare providers. They're spending trillions of dollars a year worldwide on severe Mendelian diseases and money could be recovered there. And then there's the research operations like uh, pharmaceutical companies that, that also stand to gain quite a bit of money if you, if you can get the right cohorts to them in a way that, where the, uh, more people feel comfortable with it. It's, there's been a recruiting issue. So there's a Mendelian disease issue that could be solved immediately without new research, and then there's the new research that can be used for developing new drugs. Both of those are trillion-dollar businesses, potentially. So anyway, you just pass a tiny fraction of that along to the individuals to incentivize them, or at least not de-incentivize them by the $1,000 cost. As anyone knows all too well, there is no such thing as a free lunch, really. So if you're saying that companies will pay to have individuals' genomes sequenced, maybe you get a little kickback for your own pocket. That's very nice. Money for my genome. Lovely. But what about the issues of privacy and access? You know, there's been so much talk about online data, digital data. Who has access to it? What's it being used for? How is it being used to identify and track people? How do we address that kind of issue with genomic data, which is so personal, so sensitive? 
Well, right, that was the, the point we were making in 2004 about the personal genome project is at that time we did consider extremely identifying, along with your imaging data is as well, and that's why we made it open because we couldn't think at the time of how to make it uh, closed uh, or to share it and still have it private. But since then, since 2004, there's been two computer science uh, revolutions. One is in homomorphic encryption, which is a fancy way of saying that you can ask questions of an encrypted genome and get answers out as if you had decrypted it without ever decrypting it. So that when most people think about encryption, like an email, you might encrypt something you have in a decrypted form, send it by the email, and at the other end you decrypt it. So at both ends it's decrypted. But in homomorphic encryption queries, you never decrypt, it's always encrypted. So that means and you own it. So in the Nebula model, which is what we're talking about here implicitly, the zero-dollar genome, it both figures out how to get the money squared away, but also how to keep the privacy by it, this combination of homomorphic encryption and blockchain. So it's almost like I would have my genome in a bag and someone would come to me and go, have you got this in your bag? And I can go, yes or no. Except you won't have to do that. The computer will do that. So even you don't necessarily need to look at your genome. So some people, in addition to worrying about other people seeing things in their genome, are worried about them seeing something they can't treat. And that is totally negotiable. I mean, it always has been, but this makes it even easier so that you only see things that will help you medically, which for most people is a very tiny amount of information at a current, uh, I mean, tiny but impactful to 5% of the population is very impactful and 95% of the population there's just not much, most of your problems are uh, generic for the whole human race like aging. So this allows you to not learn anything that's not actionable and you're not responsible for anything. So an insurance agency can't say, oh, you're gaming the system. You can prove that you never looked at your genome. They can't use it against you in a court of law because you don't actually have the genome. The genome is not open, uh, literally, it's not possible to uh, find out anything about your brother or your uh, other family members because the encryption has been designed to only answer certain questions. So it's not even saying, coming up to me and saying, have you got this in your genetic bag? It's like going, anonymous person, do you have this in your that, genetic that, that's, bag? That's one of the preferred ways of using it. There are, there are a number of new ways that are opened up by this, but that would be one of the preferred ways of doing it, yeah. I love the sound of this because there's a lot of those kinds of questions that have bothered me about how much do I want to know about what's going on that has relevance to my family who may not want to know the kinds of things I want to know or they do want to know the kinds of things I don't want to know and the issues with insurance and all these kinds of things. Moving on more broadly to the idea of the human genome and what we can find out about it, I think it's something that people don't really know is that the human genome that we have is not the human genome, it's a reference sequence that is not necessarily representative of all the diversity in the world, and it's not even all the basis of that six billion in our DNA. Yes, that's right. Uh, the original genome about which there was a lot of fuss made was not only a poor technology in that it couldn't produce any genomes of medical value to an individual, number one. Number two, it wasn't finished. There were five to eight percent missing. And even if we had finished for one person, as you do more and more parts of the world, we found that like 10 percent of it is missing 
from that person, even if you had a perfect sequence of that person. And we still don't have a perfect sequence of any person, and we still haven't finished the survey. So there's a bit more to do. I think the, the ability to finish a genome is approaching. Many of my colleagues consider it done, but the parts aren't done are actually quite interesting from the standpoint of senescence and you know aging and uh, non-disjunction, meaning that the way chromosomes are lost during fertilization and development. And so we need not only to finish that, we need to figure out the, the functional analysis of it. We need to figure out what by mutation, intentional mutation in the lab, we need to figure out what this function are. And that's so that ability to read and write genomes, including repetitive sections, is very important and is suddenly arriving. So these are the repetitive bits, the sort of long dead viruses, just structural parts of the genome, repeated sequences. Why are they so damaging to health? What, what goes wrong with them? And then what are you trying to do to understand and, and change them? Well, first of all, they're not long dead. Many of them are still active. Many of them jump around during development. And so random jumping around is you could land in the wrong place and cause cancer or some developmental defect. They also probably have a positive aspect that some have been found to have a positive component in, uh, say, placental development and health. So we need to understand what they do, and some of them will be of technological significance. So like one example of a highly repetitive, non-conserved, functionless in the sense you could delete it was a CRISPR, which then turned into a, a major technology for editing genomes. So both from the aspect that they could hurt you, they could help you, or they could be some new technology, I think that's why we need to finish the human genome. And once we've got the sequence of the human genome for whatever value that looks like, now we have the tools in our hands to start chopping it up, taking bits out, rearranging, rewriting. Where do you see the future of that heading and what are you and your team trying to do there? Well, so we've been working on the technology for writing as much as for reading and both of them we brought down the cost by about uh, 10 million fold. Then there's editing where the efforts have resulted in a slightly smaller improvement, um, but something that people can still get very excited about. And most of the editing is used for, clinically so far, is used for rare genetic diseases and some infectious diseases. But one of the things that my group is working on is uh, solving a diseases that affects everybody, which are diseases of aging. We would like to reverse aging so you have a very youthful existence for more years. And this would be through manipulating the repeats, changing them, deleting them, fiddling with the, the kind of repetitive sequences in the genome. So the aging reversal is not limited to repeats. There is some evidence that the repeats are involved. The, the telomeres uh, at the ends of chromosomes certainly are involved. The interstitial ones are also involved. But no, I mean, we, we have almost every gene has some possibility. Uh, we, we've kind of whittled it down to about 300 uh, non-repetitive regions plus, uh, you know, a dozen repeat family types. At some point, if you're talking about making lots and lots of changes in the genome, and at one of your slides you talked about making thousands of changes, wouldn't it just be quicker to build a whole new chromosome? Uh, Yes, I mean, we certainly do some of that. We call it writing and editing, and if you do enough editing, it would be hyper-editing, uh, which it's kind of a case-by-case -case thing as the technology changes and it's changing so rapidly, exponentially. 
we have to reevaluate it basically every year. And I would say just in the last few months, it's shifted from an emphasis on, in my lab at least, on writing the DNA back to high editing because we we found that we can now make up to 26,000 edits, which is sort of more than most projects that involve resynthesis from scratch. Even though it's very inexpensive to write the DNA in the little segments, it's like on the order of a few thousand, a couple thousand dollars to write a whole human genome of six billion base pairs, to assemble it properly and test it is still prohibitive. But editing is, it can be very easy if you get the editing right it does it more or less automatically in a few days. I'm just stunned by you saying, oh, we can make 26,000 edits, and I spent most of my PhD trying to knock out one gene. Right. Yes, no, it's, it's changed tremendously. And it's not because we have a room full of robots. It's, it literally is a molecular method where, you know, one person's hand can do it in a couple of minutes, and then you let it incubate for a few days in the incubator and it's done. So it really is a completely different uh, game and, it's, and it has to do with what we call multiplexing, uh, which is an electronics term that we've borrowed. Uh, molecular multiplexing allows us to do sometimes billions of things for the same cost and effort as one thing. And finally, I'm intrigued about where the advances in technology are going to enable us to look at sequence of DNA, the sequence of RNA, you know, when genes are active in situ, because I think this is something else people don't really realize about the human genome, is that it's different in different parts of your body, and it's doing different things. And if you just take a sample of tissue or blood and mash it up and look at the genes or, or look at the RNA, you're missing all that kind of context and, and single cell detail. Where are we on now with those kinds of approaches? Will we be able to see the DNA sequence in a single cell down a microscope one day? Yeah, the, well, the one day is, is this year, uh, basically. So, so another thing that we're missing is the three-dimensional structure of the individual cell and the three-dimensional structure of cells within organs in the body. And you know we have anatomy, so we have very good anatomy. That has been stable for decades, uh, the anatomy books that the medical students use. But when you start extending that down below the cellular level, we have pictures which might be in two or three colors when there are millions of different colors or different molecules that should each deserve its own color. So, so what's happened is the, exactly the same methods that we use for sequencing DNA where you break the cell apart and splatter it randomly on a, on a glass microscope slide, we can say, hey, sequencing now is microscopy. Why break it apart and randomize it? Why not keep the 3D coordinates? And so that's called fluorescent and C2 sequencing, and it works for DNA, RNA, protein, anything for which you have an antibody, including carbohydrates. And so suddenly now every molecule, every pixel every voxel in a three-dimensional tissue section or the reconstruction of an entire organism, if you have enough microscope time, every pixel has uh, a molecule in it that has a name. I just think it's wonderful. It completely blows my mind. Finally, you gave us a talk where at the end, you know, you said any questions and everyone sat there like their brain had been winded. Uh, because some of this stuff sounds so fantastical and even a few years ago I would never have believed some of the things that have been published recently. Just give me a little snapshot, paint me a picture of something in the future that you can see being a reality that 
would sound like science fiction today? Well, I mean, first we have to calibrate the things that sounded like science fiction when I started them and now are, are ordinary today. So, for example, nanopore sequencing was something I started in the 1980s, and it just seemed implausible that you could hold in your hand a sequencing device, because at that time, even pathetic sequencing devices were the size of a room, and they could hardly do anything. But anyway, now you can hold in your hand something that has, uh, you know, millions of sequencing devices at the nanomachines. Similarly, a nanomachine that could so precisely make thousands of edits in the, in the cell was science fiction. Okay, so that's, that's the calibration of things that have been delivered going forward. The things like uh, we can now apply some of these tools to making an infinite supply of organs. So rather than having to find, desperately find a match, very often by the time it's delivered, it doesn't work, it's dead or not suitable for use, and there's not an adequate number of people dying in a suitable way to donate their organs, that can be solved either by engineering human organ development in, in the lab or via animals, pigs that, can, uh, that are close enough, that are now engineered to be donors. You know, I could go on, but there, there's, these things sound like science fiction, and some of them arrive very, very quickly, you know, five years, some of them were, you know, went from a crazy idea to everybody's doing it. The idea that you talked about that I really loved was the concept of having a tiny DNA sequencer, you know, maybe in your watch or something like that, that was constantly scanning the microbes in the environment. So if someone sneezes near you on the tube, you could be like, oh, oh God, no, they've got oh, a bug or cold or something like that. I'm going to move to the other side of the carriage. That seems like something implausible, but could genuinely become a reality, the pace of change that's happening. We're very close. The nanopores that I mentioned is portable. It's not quite real time, meaning it's, it's a 20 minute delay when it, we would like something that's more like a two second delay or less. Yeah, you can't move, move away from someone who sneezed on you with a cold if it's half but an you, hour later. But you, you could have uh, ubiquitous monitors where over the course of a day, a room goes from being healthy to unhealthy, like a daycare or an airplane or you know, waiting room or something like that. During the, takes a course of a day, you know, for somebody to sneeze and to detect that, or even even 20 minutes would be great. Uh, and then basically, you don't just keep it to yourself; you tweet it out to the whole network of wearable sequencing devices, and you're all healthier for it. Because right now, you know, some sneezes are harmless. I mean, you shouldn't be terrified of them, but others are are more serious. And it's not just pathogens; it's also allergens. So. If you have a way of, of carefully monitoring what you're sensitive to and what's in the environment. And also, it's, some pathogens are okay if you're already immune to them. So it's a highly personalized software that you need. And some of them are okay if there's a good drug for them. But others are multi-drug resistant. So there's all these nuances. Are you allergic to it? Are you immune to it? Is there a drug for it? And I think there's a great opportunity for software, just like there was a great opportunity for software in the dawn of uh, GPS satellites and maps and queries of the internet, Wikipedia and so forth. We're in a similar point now for biology. Genomics from everyone, from everything, all genomes all the time. Right, yeah. It's, it's Genomes for All was, a, was the title of a paper I wrote in Scientific American in 2005. Uh, still a good goal. <laughs> George Church from Harvard Medical School, winding me in the brain with his vision for the future.
This is Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Genetics Unzip and online at geneticsunzipped.com. Please do take a minute to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from, and it would be really great if you could take the time to rate and review the show. It does make a difference. And please do tell all your friends. Another person I met at the Personal Genomics Conference was one of the organisers, Manuel Corpas, a genome bioinformatician from Cambridge Precision Medicine, who's been working in the field for many years. While working at the Wellcome Sanger Institute, he started to get interested in delving into his own personal genome. And once he'd done that, he wondered if his family would also be interested in looking inside their genes too. It was a time when personal genomics became possible with the launching of direct-to-consumers such as um, 23andMe, etc. And so I thought, hmm, if this is happening now for, you know, we're using genomics for people who have rare genomic diseases. I mean, it's just a question of time that this is going to become mainstream. So I thought that it would be a good idea to, you know, first uh, <laughs> see my own genome. See, and since I'm a bioinformatician, so I can analyze myself. You can download it from 23andMe, which is what I did. And so that was the start in 2009. And then uh, we decided to analyze my family genomes because I had a higher risk than normal to have prostate cancer. And I didn't know why. I had prostate cancer, elevated risk, since this was something that it didn't exist in my family. We didn't have any history of that. And um, I was able to learn a bit of genetics, uh, the most contributing marker for genetics of prostate cancer. It happens that I uh, inherited the sort of bad allele, the bad copy from my mom and the bad copy from my dad that they don't have them together, but when you put them together, when they created me, uh, then increases the risk of having prostate cancer. And that was the beginning of a tale that is still ongoing. <laughs> so then what happened? You went to the rest of your family and said like, hi everyone, uh, Christmas present, uh, spit in this tube. <laughs> yeah, so it was more like an evolution of things. So I, after I did the 23andMe for all my family and we decided to put it together, and then uh, made it publicly accessible to anyone who wanted to use it. Um, then I got a lot of interest from the community because at the time there wasn't any complete family genome that could be openly downloadable. So I got a lot of people interested in just using it. And I said, okay, fine, here you have them, but if you find something useful, then feed me back the results. Yeah, uh, but useful can also mean not great. That's absolutely right. Um, yeah, I mean, the thing is that we are kind of Spanish laid back people. And uh, we, I, I guess that, uh, you know, when, when you want to learn about your personal genome and learn all this information, it's not what you can get out of that. It's more like what's your personal attitude, whether you want to know or don't want to know. And so, after going through a lengthy process of asking for advice from people who know about the ethical legal implications of sharing data, um, my family you know, was very supportive and they wanted to sort of get on board with science, so to speak. And when 
didn't your family got the information within their genomes and started looking at it and looking at each other how did they respond when it's like okay we've all got our genomes what does this tell us about us and, and our family yeah so i mean it's the kind of questions that many people are now beginning to wonder uh, for example who's got the best genome yeah, competitive right. genomes. Yeah. I don't know how competitive your family is, but whoa. Yeah, mine, my, mine my family be. is very competitive. Well, no, it was more like uh, Southern Spanish, yeah, oh yeah, um, auntie's genome is not so good. Well, never mind. So that was one of the first things that came up. Um, my mommy, who loves uh, who loves me a lot, uh, she's got apparently fewer risks than I do, and she said, oh, I'll give you my genome if you want. Oh, so she well, she already gave sweet. you the worst bits of hers. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Mom, sorry, you cannot, you know, I was born with this, so that's it, that, that's, that's for life now, uh, at least for now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, if you wanted to give me the good genes, you should have done that a few decades ago. <laughs> uh, bad luck. And where has this story got to? Have there been any more surprising things that have come out of your family exploration? Yes, I mean, obviously, thank God my father is my real father. But mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that is a... Uh, I, all these people getting the kits for Christmas and they're like, hi everyone! And then you sort of get mum going, mm, yeah, maybe we'll do this later? <laughs> yes. Um, so another interesting thing that I found was why my dad doesn't like milk in his coffee because uh, he's lactose intolerant and he doesn't like milk very much but you know we did find that he's got a very high risk of lactose intolerant now this is what the genetics is saying and this is us trying to assign a causative correlation Uh, that's what we believe but you know I cannot tell you for sure if that's the actual reason and this is kind of a, a lesson to relearn that you may find wonderful, lovely things, many predictions, and you know sometimes you might end up adjusting your own personal narrative based on the results with no correlation to the real genetic basis of, of, your, of your own. So I've learned a lot about communications of results. You know, for example, uh, my aunt had several episodes of venous thromboembolism and it, so it, blood clots yeah, yeah and, and it appeared that she had high risk in her genome for that and then I said you know um, auntie so the fact that you're having thromboembolisms uh, is not because perhaps you have smoked a lot or have a lot a lot to drink you know actually you had that susceptibility and and I she actually didn't do much with that. You know, she could have gone to her GP and perhaps talk about that, but, but there wasn't a lot of intake there. Um, the other thing is that uh, my sister's genome, who was represented as a series of chromosomal pixelated images, was taken by an artist, and this artist created the first blanket genome in the world, which if you have the chance to go to the Tilsburg Museum of Textile Industry in Amsterdam, you'll see the first genome blanket, which belongs to my sister. Oh, that's amazing. I I was going to go to Amsterdam next month, so I would go and check it out. And we're here, this is the, uh, the Personal Genomes Conference, why is it so important to have this conference and why is it so important to be having the kinds of conversations now about what does genomic testing mean? What do these results mean? How do we talk about it and what's coming down the pipeline? Well, I mean, the hope 
is that we are about to cross the point of inflection where genomics is going to become something which is widespread. The prices have come down, the amount you need to pay to get your genome sequences below a thousand dollars. Well, down to zero if you believe George Church. <laughs> at some point perhaps, uh, but of course, you know, then if you want to do the interpretation, that's a different matter. But I think the real point here is that technology is unstoppable. And I can see the sort of similarities at the beginning of the 90s that, you know, when the internet kind of started by Tim Berners-Lee, right, in 91, and then at the end of the decade, everyone knew what the internet was and, you know, it became something that sort of have changed our, our ways of life. And I believe that genomics is poised to change the way medicine is done. And as a result, the way we live our lives, as a result, the way we even know ourselves and our own understandings of ourselves. Um, I'm going to give you a, a, an anecdote, for example. Um, my, sadly, my, my auntie passed away a few years ago, and I was able to retrieve a few years later uh, some, some of her hairs, and I have sequenced her, her genome, right? And I posted that in the blog, and I already got people who came back to me, oh, my son passed away a few years ago, can you help me uh, sequence his genome? You know, I don't have anything else from him, but I want to have his genome as a way of, you know, having something about him. So, and that tells me that because it is so deep, the implications of having the, that information. People are, are looking at themselves or are looking at genomes as a new facet of their own personality, their own, their own being. And so I think that's potentially what could happen in the near future. You may be gone, but your genome lives on. That's Manuel Corpas speaking to me at the recent Personal Genomes Conference. Orchids are one of the largest groups of flowering plants, popping up all over the place in an incredibly diverse array of shapes and colours. But while you might mainly think of orchids as ornamental houseplants, and I've certainly received a few as sadly short-lived housewarming gifts in my time, many species in their native locations are vulnerable to poaching or deforestation. So understanding the genetic diversity and complexity in these wild populations is essential for helping to figure out how species are changing and targeting conservation efforts most effectively. In the latest episode of the podcast from Heredity, the Genetic Society Journal, James Bergen chats to Professor José Riondo from King Juan Carlos University in Madrid about his latest paper investigating the fine-scale genetic structure of an unassuming orchid that grows nestled in trees within Ecuadorian cloud forests. Working in a landscape unlike any other, José and his team have uncovered a genetic mystery – while they might have expected orchids growing within the same trees to all be genetically similar, the reality is not so simple, highlighting vital conservation considerations for these iconic and endangered plants. Actually, the, the reason why we chose this species is a bit sad because orchids in Ecuador are under danger of extinction because of illegal orchid poaching. So we ended up choosing a species which is not a very showy orchid. On the contrary, it is a small orchid with green flowers and narrow leaves. 
and it is called Epidendrum ropalostele. But it is just one of many epiphytic orchids in the Ecuador. One particular result that was quite striking was that we found individuals belonging to these two groups in 21 of the 25 trees. This was quite unexpected because, I mean, if there is genetic differentiation in a population, you would expect to find it to be related to some environmental difference or, or to some geographic difference. But in this case, the individuals of both groups were present in 21 of the trees where the orchids were found. You can hear the full interview in the latest Heredity podcast. Just search for Heredity in your favourite podcast app or follow the link from the page for this podcast at geneticsunzipped.com. That's all for now. Next time we'll be back with more stories from our series exploring 100 ideas in genetics, taking a spin round the flower garden in search of snapdragons and miniature DNA sequencers. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references and everything else, just head over to geneticsunzipped.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip and you can email me podcast at geneticsunzipped.com with any questions and feedback. Please do take a minute to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from and please do rate and review the show. And more importantly, spread the word so more people can tune in and listen too. Genetics Unzipped is presented by me, Kat Arney, and produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme tune was composed by Dan Pollard, our logo is designed by James Mayle, and productions by Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye.